Well, welcome to the Living with Power Hope podcast. I am Lena Abujamra, and I want to welcome you again to our show. It is Thursday. Thursdays are a great day because it's the day that you and I get together again, and we are in a series uh, talking about the topic of my book, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. As you know, here in this podcast, we meet weekly and we talk about matters of life, faith, and culture, and everything in between. And We've had opportunities to hear from a number of different people, and we've also had chances to get your questions and have this uh, Dear Lena column that we'll get back to eventually. But right now, with the launch of my book, Fractured Faith, that came out September 7th, we're doing a focused uh, few weeks where we really delve into the pain, especially that we endure at the hand of other Christians in our churches, but also some of that deconstruction and disillusionment of Christianity and the faith that grows in so many of our hearts. So if you've been enjoying this uh, podcast series, I hope that you subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And if you haven't gotten the book yet, you need to. And if you want to join us for a book club, it's not too late. You can join us on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Central on the Facebook Living with Power community page. There's a link right on my website, the livingwithpower.org website at the top of the page. Hey, that's a lot. But more importantly today, I cannot wait to introduce you to our guest. She is not a first timer. We've had her before. Got a lot of great reviews about her podcast. She talked about divorce and uh, living as a divorced woman in the church, a single mom, and just blessed many of you. Her name is Wendy Elsop. She is a math teacher of all things and a blogger, author of several books. Companions and Suffering is her most recent one. Comfort for Times of Loss and Loneliness. And oh, how we need this book. And, and she's written a lot about theology for women. She has a, a blog. Uh, she's blogged at uh, a number of different uh, uh, sites like the Gospel Coalition and others. But today we are uh, bringing her here to talk about her experience. Uh, she's in, in, in church hurt, uh, sadly. And she has been a vocal uh, voice on a podcast that's very popular right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And so if you are at all connected in church world or follow Twitter or church politics. I'm sure you've heard of her former pastor, Mark Driscoll, and all of the uh, public record uh, that has uh, floated around and now is in a Christianity Today podcast. And so, Wendy, uh, that's a a lot of introduction to talk about the fact that we're going to talk about you and how you went through a difficult season in your church. And here you are now, a strong woman of God, still faithfully believing God. And I'm so excited to have you back here today. Thanks, Lena. I am so glad to be with you. And I'm so glad for the ministry of Fractured Faith, because I really, really believe there are a lot of women with this story and that your book's going to minister a lot of grace. Well, I appreciate that. And of course, you know, having lived through this, that grace is what's gotten us this far. And I have, I want to tell you, I have have followed that podcast immensely and have I've been riveted by it. And so if anyone listening has had a chance to listen, it has been so insightful. And I'm telling you, one of the biggest, two things, two take-homes. One is how closely my church experience mirrors what happened at Mars Hill. I think right. the playbook that, that happened in your church, I, I don't know who started that playbook. I, I want to say Satan did, but but wherever it started, it, it, it was a parallel story, maybe a few years behind exactly what happened in my church. And secondly, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm riveted by um, the fact that it wasn't just, it's not just one church that went through a difficult thing. I feel like the more I've listened, the more I feel like there's a whole generation of us that have endured this sort of whatever was happening in evangelicalism in that season of celebrity pastors and big names, leading big movements, big revival, big growth, and on and on. And, and, and 
in it, I think there was a sense as, as I went through my own church pain of maybe I'm the stupid one or, you know, the ignorant one, but really now seeing that there was maybe a bigger thing, has that struck you as true or tell me a little bit about your perspective on a big brush, big scale perspective first. Now we'll delve into your own story. Yeah, I do think um, probably the most helpful Bible principle to me in this whole thing is in Ecclesiastes, where it says there's nothing new under the sun. And I know at Mars Hill, we thought we were doing something new and exciting for God. And it, uh, we were excited. And then we also, um, we weren't actually doing something new and exciting for God because really there's nothing new under the sun. And, and, and in retrospect, we got caught up in exactly the same kind of problems that have thousands of churches over thousands of years, um, you know, and even the Old Testament times have gotten caught up in. And I think really what your and my story is not that it's unique it's that we are in a new age, a social media age, where we can track it faster because our pastors yeah. posted on internet and social media, and now we can tell immediately, we can tell the story. And so, you know, if there's a controversy on the West Coast at midnight on Friday night, by Saturday morning, 8 a.m., folks on the East Coast know. And that's, oh, so that's not how those stories used to be. But I don't really think the controversies we face or the sin issues or the power struggles or the pride issues or anything new. I just think they were in a new culture and a new format. Well, and I think so much of what covers that, that I, I, you hit on something. You said this concept, because we were told the same thing, but more than we were told that we felt it like we were mm-hmm. living in unique days of massive God movement with you, you all. And I, I alluded to that in my introduction, like you were part of something bigger than right. you. And honestly, if I miss anything about those days, it's that. Was that made up? What, what do you make of that? No, I don't. I mean, I do think God was working. And I think maybe our foolishness was uh, that we, we became proud in what he was doing. Um, and not humble in what he was doing. We were not humbled by what, at least at Mars Hill. How much of it was Satan just bringing God's work down versus the internal character flaws of leaders? I think a lot of it was internal. I think a lot of it was pride over what was doing and that God doesn't share his glory. And um, I know for us, we had a fork in the road when I think leadership started taking credit for what God was doing. And that was Mm. really when I saw it take a different route. At that point, I think the church really was dying, but you know, a dying, uh, a car can be, a car can sputter on for a while. You can roll a while on, on flat tires. And I think it managed to go forward a good while longer as it died spiritually. But really, I think the fork in the road was when leadership, where God was using, um, and then for us in particular, we were reaching a demographic that um, just wasn't being reached by other ministries. In a city that was very unreachable. That's right. I really believe the spirit was doing something. I believe, and that's probably what, you know, it's, it's most hurtful for me for people to say something like, well, I could have seen it day one. 
And I'm like, well, maybe mm. you can, because they're playing the negative things that were said, you can see that day one. But if you were Let's also- more than quarterbacking, right? I mean, everybody can see it now, looking back. Right. But if you also saw young men who had previously, you know, declared themselves atheists coming and yeah. deciding they wanted to submit to the God of the Bible and wanted to read his word, that thing you may have too had a different perspective on it. But, and I, and so I think that for us, there actually was something good going on, but yeah. there came a point where Mark really began to believe he was responsible for it happening and he needed to be protected from criticism or rebuke or discipline mm. in order for it to continue. And that's when it became just, I think, a really unhealthy thing. Toxic or, yeah. So, so let, let's, let's kind of give a little context for listeners. So you were not just an attender, you were very involved, right? You actually, actually, again, we're living similar lives. You were the women's right. ministry director as right. I was at my church. It was it you were at the main campus. Yes. Yeah. Same here. And you came into the church at what stage of the development early on? Was it already multi-campus? It was um, multi-campus, but not, not real big at the time I came on. We were about 800 people in a bunch of little buildings, so maybe three different little buildings. So there was probably six services of about 150 or 200 people each. And the preaching was divided between two or three different pastors. So Mark was not being video projected all over. And at that point, it wasn't Mark-centric. It wasn't all centered around one person. Um, there was a true plurality of elders, a plurality of leadership. Um, and, and you know, we were taught early on that Jesus was the head pastor and all the other pastors were mutually submitted to him and had mutual accountability among themselves. And so when you uh, came on, how long did it take you to get on the, what should we call it, the inside circle? Because a lot of those mega church models end up having this sort of, the closer you are to the circle of trust of the pastor, the more anointed and special you are. You know, there's sort of this almost like a pyramid scheme that I don't think anybody sort of calls it that, but but it's inevitable. Like you start, I saw it in my church, people wanted to know someone who knew someone who knew the pastor and it became worse the bigger we got. And so right. in order to even become the women's mystery director, like where in the, you know, how did you, how did you get on the inside? I mean, you were just an average Jane who showed up. Did you have any knowledge of Mark before you showed up? No, we actually showed up more because we were interested in church planning with Acts 29. But when when we got there, um, I just walked into the church and to volunteer. I remember this was actually something kind of healthy there. But I, I walked in and I kind of thought a little bit highly of my, you know, <laughs> um, abilities. You know, I've been leading women's ministry back in my church in South Carolina and maybe y'all like me to kind of, you know, get involved. And they're like, how about you? We, if you want to volunteer, why don't you take these chairs that are downstairs and we need them upstairs. And so I spent like my first (laughs) week volunteering at the church. That's humbling. (laughs) I'm surprised you stayed. What are you like? What are you like? Who do they think they are? (laughs) No, I, right off the bat, the Lord was like, uh, Wendy, uh, stop being, you know, a jerk. And then they knew that I taught math at the community college. And so for some reason they thought I would be good as an accountant. So they put me into counting. Hmm. And that, but that was as I counted receipts after offerings. I got to know 
two of the deacons that eventually became elders, and we would just have various talks as we were counting money. And because um, they, and this was healthy, they had to have two people in there to have, you know, accountability over the yeah. money. And that's how I eventually kind of got in was just by doing the regular work on the ground and trying not to be a jerk, even though I at first walked in kind of proud. But and, yeah, I, and yeah, you also told the story of sort of the kindness of the pastor in your life at the time. I heard on the podcast, uh, you, you told the story of how your husband was sick, was it? And you end up staying at the pastor's house. Yeah, that's right. So that was we moved to Seattle in August, and in November, um, my now ex-husband, my husband at the time, was um, diagnosed with a congenital heart defect and had to have immediate open heart surgery. He was 25, um, mm. so it was very unexpected, and we're in a new city, and it was a it was something. Marcel really loved us well for new people. Um, and at that point, the pastor lived right around the corner from the hospital. And he told me that they, they invited us up at the front of the church and prayed over us before his surgery. And um, he told me, you know, if we had, I had an issue, he gave me his cell phone number and to call him. And I did have an issue in the middle of the night. And they got up at midnight and let me in and were very kind to me. And, you know, it's also that kind of personal interaction where you see them mm. as sacrificial giving folks. They're not all horrible all the time. If someone was horrible all the time, yeah. you know, n- nobody would put up with that. But when we get on these, um, you know, if you get into a podcast like this, you're highlighting the bad moments, right? But in, a, you know, 15 years of ministry, and you might be able to show... 10 to 20 really bad pivotal moments, but at most that's like two a year. And so if you're involved in, and in between those very bad moments, you're having healthy moments. It's very hard. I think to see, it depends kind of on, on, on your perspective, but I was someone who wanted to believe the best. I was hopeful and so the cumulative aspect of the good outweighed for me the cumulative aspect of the bad until it got to a point where I couldn't ignore the bad anymore. It's like an infection. You let it sit. And then one day you go, man, this thing stinks so bad. I got to go see. I mean, it happens in, in ER all the time. You get people right. with horrible infections and you go, why didn't you come sooner? Well, wasn't that big a deal? And one day you wake up and it's obvious right. to everybody. What right. amazes me is that even then, not everybody smells the stench. So, so just to give some timelines, I mean, so in listening and knowing a little bit more, and because I think this will have, I sort of want to dig into sort of the emotions that, even looking back, but but hearing some of the timelines on the podcast, somewhere around two thousand and four, by then things were sort of growing, and it had shifted from just being on Christ Center to sort of Mark had a lot of quirky character issues that people were aware of, and but but something happened two thousand and four where two elders were booted out, very ugly fashion. I don't think we need to get into the details. It's documented on the Marcel, one of the episodes on the podcast um, that Christianity Today is doing. But it's riveting to hear because you really didn't leave till late, close to 2008 or nine, And so there's this gap where you can tell now, again, that beginning of infection and there's, and you even commented on Facebook when that episode dropped, like, wow, it took, and it still took, even after you leave in 2008, nine-ish, 
it takes another few years before the world kind of goes. And by then there's, there's blogs writing about it, documenting all these things, but it's like people just don't want to see it. And I think that's been one of the biggest issues in my mind heart when I've like now it's been a few years, but when I left my church, I was at Harvest Bible Chapel. And of course, watching that all follow very similar patterns to what happened at, at the Driscoll, um, you know, church. It, it, it's mind boggling that gap that why does it take people so long to catch on? And, and A, so let's talk about that. And then B, how did that affect you after you left of, of feeling like, what the heck is happening? Like reeling with, I see it. Why hasn't anybody seen it? What were the emotions that went through? So maybe first, why does it take us so long to, to catch on? Yeah. So those elders were fired in October of 2007. And then we uh, left in um, like March, April of 2008. And, but the interesting thing is how much it hurt um, the elder's wife, one of the elder's mm. wives, even just those few months that it took for us to leave. And we didn't actually leave. They expired everybody's membership. And then we just did not feel like we could sign back on. Which, but footnote, that's just the oddest thing. I never, that didn't happen at my church. Like, what was that about? Yeah. Well, the bottom line of that was they put out new church structure and they wanted members to say, we agree with the elders. And so if you still had any issue, what they didn't want is any members that had any issues with the elders for the previous things. So they're mm. basically saying, if you're not on board 110% with us, bye-bye. And so, you know, we just could not sign up on that and they also totally changed our core values so they we had had core values that had been with the church since its founding in 98 99 and they quit with those and came up with new core values and it just totally changed the church totally changed at did that you, point. did it cross your mind to stay or were you clearly like this is crazy well i didn't know what to do until i read the document i had to sign and it just, mm -hmm. it had the bottom line is that you had to sign it and say you had no problems with the elders. And that wasn't true. I was right in the middle of a very concerning issue where I was very concerned with how they had treated these, these other elders that they had fired and public statements that they made that I just thought were sinful. So there mm -hmm. was no way I could sign, sign. And I just really felt like God was very kind in giving us clarity on leaving were you a woman's director then, or had you already stepped down from that position? No, I was woman's director. And it was, you know, it was very threatening to me personally uh, to lose that ministry. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I knew I couldn't sign that document, so I didn't have a choice. How did so many people sign it? Because about, I think at the time, there was a little exodus, like a thousand people, but it by far didn't measure compared to the people who stayed. Well, by that point, you know, the two elders, Paul and Bent, who had been fired, were there early on. But once you get, they were, you know, when you're around 800 people and you have two core elders that are big in community groups, most people know them. But when you get to be five or 6,000, two mm -hmm. elders, you know, maybe minister pretty closely to 30 people each. Mm -hmm. But but there's thousands of folks that have they don't go to the same campus as Paul and Bent. They've never met Paul and Bent. They don't know Paul and Bent's families. And then it's 
incredibly easy to believe the narrative that Mark puts out about them as being divisive men or angry men. I think this is classic, like abuse of power, right? I mean, this has yeah. been a big talk in, in evangelicalism in the last four or five years. And, and yet it, it, there's still, it's such a hard topic to, con, to converse about because you look back and go, man, it's so obvious, but you don't see it in it. What are some things that you've learned even now like, that might help you be awake to that so that I don't ever want to be stuck in a system again where I miss it. Cause I think in some ways I look back and people say, did you have any regrets about leaving? Sometimes I think, man, I wish I left a few months earlier. Like I almost overlooked things granted, not yours, but months where I think I probably saw some things and I chose to believe a narrative. Why? It's so hard to see past the narrative that you are given. Is that like, well, how do you, how do you do that? Is it possible for us to be more awake? I am trying to be better at recognizing gaslighting. And mm. um, Mike Cosper in the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast used that in the episode where he talked about the firings. And I'd never, even though I lived it, I'd never opened my eyes so clearly to see it until Mike kind of boiled down what had happened, which is basically that these elders were accused of being divisive about something in which they were not divisive. But by mm-hmm. the end of the process, the elders had been so provoked that they got upset and angry. And then at the end, they're like, well, you're so angry, we're going to fire right. And it was just classic gaslighting. But I, even I didn't see it at the end. I'm like, wow, I wish you guys had been able to not be so angry at the end. And But they have been. It's like every conversation I have with a customer service rep. Like I have a valid argument, but it's like by the end, you're like, <laughs> I mean, it's so normal, but it's you're right. I mean, it is so aggravating to see it in hindsight. Right. And so, right. you know. So I want without, to be better recognizing yeah, it myself. So the other side of that, though, because what I think is happening is as people have escaped these systems, even cult-like systems, because I think this is exactly what happens in these settings where you've got a leader that becomes like his word or the highway. You know, we used to say growing up, if the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And and for a while, you're going to a church like the Mars Hill and you go, man, if Mark Driscoll says it, I believe it, that settles it. And you don't even realize you're doing that. Harvest James right. said it, I believe it. You, know, you almost become in that zone. And and so the, the out shot of that is I think granted there's you want to be more awake but what I think this pendulum has swung to where I think we're absolutely cynical about Christian leadership now and I think I'm not even talking about individuals here and there I think as a movement the, the up what's happened as an effect is that people now have gone to the other extreme we're just like of course like I'm gonna sign on to that like you're crazy I'm never gonna want I'm suspicious of everybody so how do you protect from that and put yourself where you are able to submit to authority. Cause almost like there's such a black tinge on authority now that it's like, if I'm in a church and they tell me to do something, I don't trust anything they say. How have you been able to maintain sort of that balance of still being obedient in a church structure without becoming so suspicious? Or do you have to fight that? Well, I was fortunate in that I had been in a good church situation before I went to Mars Hill. Before I moved into it, I had pastors I trusted. And then God was kind to me to put me in a church after Mars Hill with a pastor who gained my trust. And actually, Mm -hmm. I have had lovely, humble pastors 
throughout, before and after that church experience, except for Mark Driscoll. Um, and that's been God's kindness to me. But I will say I am much more um, careful now about who I put myself under the authority. And I mm. believe in spiritual authority, but I will sit back and kind of observe like at all of the churches I've been to post Mars Hill, I listened to sermon series a lot before I joined. And also I see, I've, I've gone into the PCA particularly because the, the Presbyterian church of America, because they had a, a, a stronger accountability system for elders. So if a pastor in a church sins against a member, a member actually in the PCA can appeal to the presbytery that's over that pastor. Hmm. It's not a perfect system, but I, I, I went that direction because I just was no longer confident with um, pastoral authority that was just centered at a church with no other accountability. Which is a very common evangelical mode. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you counsel? I mean, you're still in women's ministry. You're still leading, writing. How do you counsel, let's say, the millennials and under? I think that, honestly, it's no longer just generational, though, but, but I think particularly the millennials. I find even more than disease, the millennials have taken a hit because of the sins of our fathers, so to speak. I think that they have been the most disillusioned with church yeah. if I had to pick a, a generation. How do you counsel them if they're like, man, I'll come to church, but I'm not going to join the church? Why should they join it if they've, if they've been wounded or hurt or disappointed? Let alone, why should they come? I mean, what, what would be your advice to somebody who might be like, I love Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church right now? With the church, yeah. I um, would call them to back up and go back to scripture, scripture itself because I think a lot of our... We don't trust someone to accurately teach us scripture. Like we've been manipulated with scripture. And so sometimes I feel like even more than our um, lack of trust with the church, we have a lack of trust with the authority mm -hmm. of scripture. Can it be known? Um, can I trust it to be applied to me? Um, and that's why I wrote a, a, a book, Is the Bible Good for Women? Because I wanted women to know for themselves how to read and interpret scripture so they can have confidence. But then once you re-engage with scripture and as your confidence in scripture builds, then you have to kind of face head on that scripture says you need the community of Christ. And then yeah. if you go to scripture and you're confident in scripture and scripture tells you, you need the community of Christ. That is what gave me the push to go ahead and re-engage. It wasn't me trying to, someone trying to talk me into believing the church wasn't that bad. It was, it was me coming to believe the scripture could be trusted and scripture said God's plan is to work through the church. And so whether I liked it or not, whether sometimes it got it right or sometimes it got it wrong, this is the God of the universe's plan for working in the world. And I needed to figure out. So I feel like, you know, maybe I need a therapist to help me, a Christian counselor right. to help me work through it. But doggone it, I got to work through it because this is God's plan. And I don't know what the final answer is. You know, I, I can't tell people how to work it out, but I just want to tell folks, you got to stay engaged. 
when you so mm-hmm. you mentioned this independent church system. I mean, I think when when we were going through the stuff at Harvest Bible Chapel and what was the pain that we went through, one of the shocking things to me was how the more news got out of what the corruption was at the you know executive leadership level. But in a sense, like you look back and you, I used to be so frustrated that none of the other leaders that had been friendly in the same network as our main leader ever said anything. Like it was like mom was the word on the, you know, social media spectrum, at least visibly, nobody stood up to him in a sense. It was like like a bully who was getting away with bullying everybody and no one could stand up to him. And I I was always baffled by it, except that again, the argument was, well, it's an independent church. They have no authority over him, but, but it was so hurtful to feel like, man, don't these guys see, like, like at what point do we as brothers and sisters of Christ, even if we're not technically part of the ch- same network, even now you might watch another church from another denomination or from an independent church. If, 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 if a leader in the Christian world, you know, so say like th- these people are write books, go to conferences, you know, so they have some commonality, even though they're not in the same church network. Is there a, an obligation to call people out publicly or is that something that needs to happen behind closed doors? Well, I think, you know, the most effective confrontation is going to be confrontation that's in your Christian community. So in theory, Mm -hmm. you know, even these independent churches have a plurality of elders that should be confronting each other. Um, But yeah, like you said, I mean, mean, which which is pretty much, I mean, sorry, but that's like, I mean, I'm listening to another podcast about the demise of of the leadership at Liberty, you know, with with Jerry Falwell Jr. and whatnot, and and watching that unfold in the last few years and watching the Ravi Zag. I mean, these are common things that have occurred over and over again. I mean, clearly elders and boards have as much power as the leader. Like what happened at your church was basically a restructure of the Constitution to minimize the authority of an elder or leader board. So I think what happens when those boards and leader groups fail is what I'm getting at. Who's responsible then to protect, let's say, the sheep? You know, that's a great question. And I don't know the answer to that within independent churches, which is why I've moved away toward a more structured ecclesiology, you know, more accountability. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that for me personally, I felt very constrained after I left Mars Hill yeah. what I could say about it publicly until I, I felt like if Mark had said something publicly, then I could address it publicly. And so it was helpful to me when he reached, uh, he did the book Real Marriage um, and he talked about all kinds of things publicly. And then I felt some freedom to address and review or I don't know if rebuke's the right word, but correct, or, you know, try to point out some things. But I, you know, it, it is a tricky situation. And I, I don't, I don't feel real confident in how mm-hmm. to address it. I will say what I had to lean in over and over and over again, was that, that God says, he sees, and he is a God of justice. Mm-hmm. And now I believe it, you know, I just find it fascinating. As long as it took, I find it fascinating to be on this end of it now and for, you know, the things that happen to be exposed and the vast majority of folks seeming to really recognize it. There's no more, you know, um, you know, folks saying it was okay or trying to justify what he did. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I mean, there came a point... 
even at harvest i mean i i agree i think when i left like i think back why didn't i say much you, you there's a lot of layers to it i mean there's the whole david saul like you know the one mm-hmm. saying anything about god's anointed there's sort of this thing you grow up with like don't talk about the pastor but there's also you know protecting you know the ministry the name of christ but but then more so um you feel unsafe i think i don't know if you had that sense i mean you were blackballed for a while from hearing was that like what they alluded to in the mars uh, rise and fall of mars Hill podcast was that your name yeah. was on a list of people i mean so, so there is a bit of this like wow until for for me it was when eventually the pastor was disqualified by the elders where it felt mm-hmm. like okay like you know, even then, mm-hmm. I taper what I say specifically because I don't think it's my business to judge. And but I've spoken enough to indicate that that you know that that of what I think. I don't think it's hard to. I, mean, I wrote a book on on the experience, but but it it is a, a perplexing thing because it messes with our brains. And for one of the things that messed with me, and I, maybe you left too early to to get there. It sounds like you, you're a lot wiser than I have been. But I think I became. It was hard to trust God for those right. that gap between when I left right. and when he was disqualified. Those right. years were painful to me individually with God. Right. Did you go through something like that? Oh, absolutely. Wrestled with God. Like what, what are, I mean, it was just over and over again. What are you doing? I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand your time frame, And it's mm-hmm. really hard for me to trust that you are the God of justice. But now, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, you did have a long view. And I don't know, God, why you allowed right. it to take as long as it did. But I do I do know God's timing is not our timing. And I am mm-hmm. the kid in the back seat, you know, going to the water park an hour away. How long, Mom? How long, Dad? You know, mm-hmm. how long, God? And he's like, listen, just wait. And my mm-hmm. waiting is not very patient. So I, I do definitely have a better perspective of that now. And God has increased my faith through this, that he is the God of justice and he will sanctify his church. And um, I'm hopeful that the lessons we've learned through this, as painful as it was for it to go the direction it is, did, that he is beautifying his church. He is glorifying his church. He is rooting sin out of his church for our good and his glory. Yeah. Does it surprise you that Mark Driscoll has planted a church? And I know they've had turmoil. I've read some of the more more up-to-date blogs on what's happening in that church. But still, does it surprise you that, in a sense, I, I'm going to use the sense that God is letting him get away with it again? Like, you hate to be so human about it, but there is that sense of God, wait, what just happened there? Does that surprise you? Well, it did surprise me. I think what surprised me most of all is just that anybody could still follow him because it's so out there. Um, It's so obvious and so out there. Um, Well, the leadership structure is set up even more so now to give him uh, absolute power and autonomy, which uh, my old pastor used to used to say, "What was it? Absolute power corrupts, or something that, yeah. whatever that his what was." But the point is, yeah, it, it has surprised me too. Can, can I can, can I go back to something I wanted to ask when you mentioned woman? You you write about theology for women. Um, you mentioned the book he wrote, Real Marriage, and being you know critical of some of the things he said. But as a woman's director there, and as a woman who went there for a few years, I mean, one of the big attacks against Mark Driscoll during the years that he was a pastor by some of the more progressive Christians 
but now I think more, most of us would hear, you know, clips of sermons and are mortified by his view of woman. How did you feel as a woman? Is that some of that blown out of proportion? I mean, talk about being a woman at Mars Hill. Well, it was, uh, it, it, there were multiple things and some were good and some were bad. For instance, what was good? They um, had this class called Practical Theology for Women and wanted women to learn theology. And it was like the first place I had ever been to that was like really focused on women learning theology, at least in conservative evangelicalism. You know, Mm -hmm. it was like women back at this point, this is 2002, 2004, 2006, you know, women would have the tea retreats where you learn about, I don't know, language or how to, Yeah. but that's not what ours were. And they, and I, and I kind of led them in in this other direction of a more theologically based women's ministry, but they, they were for it. Like I got no negativity from Mark. I got no negativity Mm -hmm. from any elder, you know, teach the women theology, practical theology for women. Let's teach the women the characters of God and, you know, make them good apologists. And so, so there was that sense where as a women deacon of women's theology and training, I was kind of a, that was new at that point. I think we do that better now, but, and I was supported and encouraged that way. Now, on the flip side, and some of this I didn't always see, you also had Mark alluding to his wife as like his personal porn star Mm. and, you know, the most important ministry. I mean, he said this not from the pulpit, but he said it to an Acts 29 church planting training. The most important uh, job that the pastor's wife has is having sex with the pastor. And... Mm. um, you know, so that was like the sub thread and it didn't always manifest itself in what I was experiencing at Mars Hill, but sometimes it did. So for the most part at Mars Hill, I was able to do what I was burdened to do and I was supported in it. But then occasionally you had this other thing, the subtext that Mark had of his own misogyny. And it got exposed more and more over time. And some of the Mm. worst things that have been quoted that he said actually came after my time, you know, when he was around 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008, he, it was like Mark's misogyny was on steroids after that. Um, So it wasn't always... Now, there were some things that, looking back, I think were damaging to me. But on the flip side, there were some things that were really empowering, too. Yeah. And, and you what know, you, like all of those things, if, if it had been all terrible all the time, who would have stayed in it? Yeah, that's true. I mean, looking back, just as we kind of wrap up some of those thoughts, I mean, this is, they're doing it. 10 episode series on this church. It's just riveting to study it as a case. Um, and, and, and again, his impact 
on other churches, including myself. Like I feel like in many ways this is, you know, this is yeah. so relevant to my life. So, but not just my church. I think so many. I mean, he was in a network of churches that were getting the play-by-play -play of how to grow into the same type of church he was. And so I think many people listening sort of hear this and go, "Man, that's exactly what's happening in my church." And sort of this feeling like you're not good enough if your church wasn't big enough. And this, right? You know, but but looking back, so so just sort of wrapping up. What's your biggest regret as you think back on your time there? And then what's your greatest, like, take, you know, lesson learned? Maybe let's, let's kind of think about that and, and, and so, sort of cohese some of the things as a math teacher would. Let's, let's come up with a couple of bullet points here. You know, biggest, you know, good thing that happened during your time at Marcel and, and sort of biggest lesson learned or biggest regret. My biggest regret is that I really came to, to doubt my own voice and my own instincts you know because they taught me that what i really believe is a horrible view of genesis three sixteen that a woman's innate desire after the fall is to take control from the man and so hmm. anytime i had a disagreement with my husband or the church i really second guess myself you know i'm i'm clearly must want to manipulate or take control and i just need to be quiet and try to discipline this down and but in the end, both my church and my marriage actually did have some serious issues that I wish I'd had the confidence and the wisdom to speak up about before they got to the points they did. And I don't know that I could have changed anything. Expand a little bit on that. How would you talk to me about your interpretation of Genesis 3.16 now? I think this is really important. So how would you tell I mean, what? because you're a conservative complementarian, you know, Bible teacher, explain Genesis 3.16 in, in, because we grew up, I think you and I have a similar background, being taught that, what you just said, that the woman's sinful, you know, side of, biggest sinful side effects, we want authority, we're always fighting for it. So how would you see that in light of true biblical theology now as a person who's gone through this? Explain yeah, that first to me. say that you can take it in the straightforward way it's written. A woman's a desire will be toward her husband. And that word toward in the Hebrew means terminal direction. Her desire is directed toward her husband, but he will rule over her. And so despite the fact that childbearing is incredibly painful, the woman's still going to turn toward the man. And so God created her to be a helper toward the man. God created the man to work the ground. And now the ground is frustrating to the man um, and the, the man is frustrating the woman. So both these things that God created man and woman to, to move toward are both going to be frustrating to them in return. And this is the effect mm -hmm. of the fall. But I was taught. But headship, what does headship look like then? And, and I don't want to get off topic, but I think this is, you, you bring up. Because it, it, I mean, women stay in relationships where they're abused because of a mis, because of that. What you just said, being taught in churches like you need to submit to whatever it is that your husband's saying. Whereas what you're describing is sort of a headship that there's a struggle, but at the end of the day, being a woman doesn't mean you resign your brain, your wisdom, your God-given discernment. There's there's more to it than just saying yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, I'm your sir, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and I think a lot of what God created. You know, it depends on whether you want to live in light of creation or you're going to live in light of the fall. And if we are in Christ, then I think we're supposed to be looking toward what God created us to be before the fall. And he created woman to be a helper, 
you know, an azer in the image of God. And this involves our voice as well as, you know, I mean, I might wash my husband's clothes, but I'm also to encourage and speak words of truth to him. And the biggest thing that I didn't do was to speak verbally. I I didn't have a frame of reference for how I could disagree with him, um, but disagree in a way that was still godly as a helper to him and the image of God. But I think we can disagree and God has called us to iron sharpen iron, even in our marriage. And, you know, submission is not the same as oppression. Oppression is when um, you're forced or expected to not have any agency. But a wife who submits to her husband has agency. And I don't think I realized Mm. I had agency that I could stand up and say, and then also I could turn around and say, I don't have to submit to you in this, but I'm going to, because this is my conviction from scripture. Um, good. And, and that's a subtle, but real difference that I wish I had had at the time. Uh, I think that's really helpful. Actually. I appreciate you teasing that out. Um, and your best takeaway, what, what's the best thing that's happened to you in, in this experience? Well, you know, there were some really beautiful things at Mars Hill. And, I, you know, it's hard to admit it, but some I actually learned some things about scripture from Mark Driscoll's teaching. Mm. And maybe that's also what makes me saddest is that I know he was not all horrible all the time. And sometimes he had a gifting and how he explained things from scripture. And it just makes me so sad that there was this fork in the road where instead of being disciplined to righteousness, he was hardened to go his own way. It is sad. It is. And I I agree. I think, I think about like so many of those people who have been in the limelight, there's been many in the last year. Listen, I think that is the heartbreaking thing is there seems to be so much potential for the Lord and just to see it just, sacrificed at the altar of whatever, you know, private jet or personal, you know, number of likes or sale, whatever it is. And it just seems like so heartbreaking. And I think this is what makes church pain so painful and abuse of power in churches and in ministries so painful. And, you know, and I think um, as we wind up here, Wendy, in a second, I'll I'll have you tell people how they can follow you. But uh, last word of advice to somebody who might be listening right now, just if they're walking through a difficult situation in a church where they just don't feel like things are healthy, would you tell them leave, talk to someone or stick it out? Like, what would you advise people would be a helpful next step for somebody who might be hurting right now? Well, I would say, you know, slow down your process. So if you're speeding along in 25 ministries, you know, why don't you back up? You might need to sit on the back row of church for a while. And maybe you really feel strongly that you need to leave that church. Don't leave scripture and don't allow yourself to mentally leave the long-term church. You know, stay engaged with scripture and then trust the scripture that says, this is how I do my work. God says I do it through the church and pray, pray confidently that he would lead you to the place that you can give yourself to. 
for me in the end, God did funnel me down to a place that's not perfect, but that is humble with humble leadership. And we limp along together because that's how God does his work in our community. Mm. That's really good, Wendy. That would cover a lot. Uh, I, I really thank you for coming on. And I know you have a busy uh, fall semester. You're back to teaching. You're writing. How can people follow you and connect with you? What's the best ways for them to find out about your books? You've got a website. Yeah, um, at Wendy Alsop on Twitter. And then theologyforwomen.org is my blog. I'm not blogging a ton right now. I'm also on Facebook. Um, so they can, yeah, I think the helpful things they can catch, uh, some links to your books. You can look up yeah. to Wendy Alsup, A-L-S-U-P on Twitter. Uh, I mean, on, on Amazon, the, uh, uh the, the book on suffering that you have would be so helpful to people who are hurting right now. I think leaving church is very lonely. And I imagine that some of the things that you wrote probably would have resulted from some of the experiences that you went through in those years. Of yeah. course, you went through a divorce after that. And so just a lot of, um, empathy and experience, personal experience that you wrote about. And of course, every time I talk to you, I, I sense the wisdom that God has given you and just your ability to explain things uh, is so helpful. So thank you for coming on today as usual. Thank you for having me. You know, I always enjoy these discussions. Well, guys, thank you for tuning in today. We'll be back together again next week. Remember that today's Thursday, which means tonight I'm on live on the Facebook community page. We're going through a book club where we're discussing every week a chapter from my book, Fractured Faith, Finding Your Way Back to God in an Age of Deconstruction. If you're hurting right now, if you're going through church pain, if you're left the church, you don't know where to go, you need some prayer, maybe some friendship, maybe um, maybe you just need to tell your story. Then I'd love to hear it. You can email me at lena at livingwithpower.org. And I'd love to see you tonight in our Facebook community. Hey, come back next week. We'll have more for you. In the meantime, know that you're being prayed for and that you are not alone. God is with you even when you can't feel or see his presence. Don't give up. He's closer than you think. I'll see you again next week. Bye.